0: Hi guys, welcome back to Tell Me About It with Jade Iovine. If we haven't met yet, I'm Jade Iovine. Each week, I sit down with a remarkable woman to discuss the obstacles, anxieties, the insecurities, and heartbreaks that are inevitable steps on becoming who we are. They say that no one gets through life unscathed, and I am determined to prove that each week by peeling back the social media perfected curtain and having very real heart-to-hearts about the things we've convinced ourselves we're alone in going through. So lately I've been thinking about just the incredible women we've had on the show thus far. And I was talking to my producer, Catherine, and my main goal with this show is to have such a wide variety of experiences that everyone going through anything can find validity, comfort, and even empathy in at least one other woman's story. So I was inspired to sprinkle in a few human interest stories. So I want to begin by giving you all a trigger warning. This episode will touch on sex work, human trafficking, sex trafficking, domestic violence, abuse, and stalking. So I was sent Megan Lundstrom's article in Elle from a friend a few weeks ago, and honest to God, I read it three times in one sitting, just going over each detail in horror, disbelief, shock, and awe. Megan is a woman who had a more or less typical upbringing with two loving parents in Colorado. But from the moment she turned 18 and got pregnant, her life changed forever. From an abusive and substance-addicted husband, then starting with sugaring, to meeting her first pimp, the boyfriend pimp, and later the CEO pimp, her 11 arrests, and the moment that gave her the bravery to leave for good. Megan shared the whole story from start to finish of her experience of becoming a sex trafficking victim and ultimately escaping years later and eventually rebuilding. We discussed the trauma involved in sex trafficking and how it still affects her today. We talked about being a mother of two girls while being the property of pimps, how social media has become a vital tool for pimps to recruit new victims, and so, so, so much more. Megan understands more than most the conditions that force women into dangerous situations. She knows from personal experience how to help them escape, which inspired her to co-found the Avery Center. The Avery Center offers a wide range of trauma-informed services and survivor-led programs for those currently and formerly experiencing commercial sexual exploitation. In her research and advocacy work, Megan has consulted for the Department of Homeland Security and Polaris Project. She has created training and educational presentations in the academic community, as well as a variety of organizations, including the Commercial Sexual Exploitation Institute at Villanova University Law School. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Finance and a Master's degree in Sociology from the University of Northern Colorado. All right, here is Megan Lundstrom. Hi, Megan. Hello. How are you?
1: Good. I'm so excited to be here. How are you? I'm
0: good. It's so nice to have you. I'm so excited to talk Thank to you. you. Like We have so much to unpack. I think that you probably emancipated so many other women going through the same thing through your L article, which was just so moving.
1: Thank you. Does it get easier to talk about it? Oh, that's such a good question. I feel like I for many years did a lot of public speaking of telling my story. Um, and it was such a huge piece of, of my healing was being able to kind of make sense of things and talk through things and be asked questions that I was still trying to answer for myself, but also feeling like I'm hitting this point of, I can feel the end is near of telling my story and, and ready to kind of do next things. Um, but yeah, so kind of in the gray area right now.
0: Yeah, I I think all of us feel a version of that. You feel like less sensitive, I guess, maybe is like to the story and you start to tell it and you kind of like it just becomes more of this out of body experience, you know, where it's not as connected to your heartstrings and everything. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine because you're still in that work, you know, like doing so much work with the Avery Center and helping other victims that it would be a lot of energy to absorb on top of your own healing.
1: Yes, very much so. And I think that's where I'm kind of like eh. more in my day-to-day now. I like pulling, drawing from like specific experiences I've had and creating training. So, you know, being arrested and multiple times and Mm -hmm. making a training for law enforcement that kind of digs into like just those experiences. So I'm really enjoying unpacking some of those, those details as opposed to you know, just reliving all of my trauma over and over again. While, as you said, like working with other survivors and hearing their trauma and and them needing to have that space to tell their stories.
0: Right. No, it's, I totally understand that, that now that it's more of an impact, like there's more of a reason to revisit Mm -hmm. certain aspects of your story to help those that are still You know, in that world. That's so interesting. So there's no great segue here. I just would love to tell this story from start to finish because I want to start with your childhood because I think that there are so many stereotypes for the typical person that winds up in sex trafficking in the sex trafficking world. One thing that I want to clarify with you, and I think it's important to do this on the show because I think so much of the issue and stigma is involved in the language. What Mm -hmm. do you call... Sex workers.
1: Is it sex workers
0: or victims of sex
1: trafficking? Such a good question. And uh, we just had this conversation with our research team a week ago. So um, I really prefer person centered language. So, mm-hmm. like, people in prostitution um, or like prostituted persons. Mm-hmm. When we're doing interviews, whether that's for research or for, you know, a client intake, though, it's really important that we mirror the language that's being used by the person because that's, that is how they identify. um, And that's how they, you know, describe their experiences. So in those contexts, we do like, if somebody says like, I am a sex worker, Mm
0: -hmm. then it's
1: really important to use that language with them because that's how they identify.
0: What are the, are there words that are definitely not the right? Words to use?
1: Oh, I I think that that list is probably easier. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So definitely, I think number one is something. Even during in my time in this work, I've seen a shift away from it, but occasionally we still see it. Um, And so, and that is when we're talking about child victims. Mm. There is no such thing as a child prostitute,
0: right? um, Or
1: you know, a, a juvenile prostitute or a minor prostitute. That's not a thing. That individual is a trafficking victim by federal law. Children cannot consent to commercial sex transactions, so I think that's probably like a really big, yes, collective no-no that I think most people can get on board with. Yeah, absolutely. But then also just generally the term prostitute. So like lab- labeling somebody like you are a prostitute,
0: it's essentially
1: mm. telling them that their entire identity um, is is whatever stigmas and stereotypes come along with that word, um, which is why we we use more of the person-centered language.
0: Right. And that makes a lot of sense because some people might be uncomfortable with calling themselves a victim or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I, I think that's great to mirror their language. That's so interesting and something that you should use in your daily life with people. Right, You know,
1: <laughs> it's, Definitely. it's kind of, yeah, that, that carries into whatever you do. Yes. Really listening to people and how they, identify and how, how their world is shaped and, and coming alongside them in that. Absolutely.
0: So back to your childhood. So can you kind of paint a picture for how you grew up?
1: Sure. Um, so definitely I think grew up in poverty, um, Mm -hmm. but kind of working class, my, my parents both worked full time and were just kind of barely making it, but didn't I think I was protected from a lot of, of that, like more in hindsight, realizing like, wow, we did not have, we didn't have a lot right. growing up. And yeah, my, my mom was around, she did uh daycare. So um, mm. I literally grew up with her in the home and, and my dad worked outside the home. So super present, very, very involved. Like both of my parents, you know, went to PTA meetings and soccer games and all of those things um they were both very present.
0: Right. And this was all in Colorado.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: So you got pregnant at 18, right? Mm-hmm.
1: So I moved out on my own actually with a couple friends my senior year of high school just a few months before I turned 18 and that was a lot of freedom. Yeah. Real quick. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> my oldest kiddo is 17 now and I just look at him and I'm like Oh my gosh. Like I was living independently right. at your age. And like, I had my first child, just not much older than you. Right. And, and just seeing how much of, of a kid, like he's still figuring out life.
0: His amygdala isn't formed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like there's
1: no, not much is happening in the prefrontal cortex Yes. Um, just yet. And just, you know, realizing how much of the world I didn't know, even though mm-hmm. at 18, you think, you know, everything. Yes. So, yeah, so I was dating a guy and ended up getting pregnant and mm-hmm. we decided to get married. Kind of a, I guess, like traditional shotgun wedding style of like, well, now you're pregnant, you have to get married. Were your friends getting married at the same time or pregnant? Oh gosh, no. No, okay. No. It was, okay. It's, it's been crazy. A lot of my friends from that time period are just now, Oh wow, um, you know, getting married and having their first kiddos. And how old are you now? Crazy. I'm 36. Okay, cool. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, so it's it's been really fun to see friends, you know, have babies, and I'm like, oh, it's fine. You're a
0: seasoned vet.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um. So yeah, got pregnant, got married, had him, um, had my oldest two days after my 19th birthday, and then had my second, my daughter, Mm -hmm. who's now 14, Mm -hmm. um, about two years after that. And during that time, my husband, their father, again, like I think. The motto of life is hindsight is 2020. Of course. So I can see, I can see things now that I didn't see at that time, but he was struggling. Yeah. Like I just, I just didn't see it. So Mm -hmm. he was very much struggling with a substance use disorder before, Mm -hmm. you know, when we started dating and it just got worse throughout our marriage. And so alcohol and drugs
0: or both
1: or. Yep. Yeah. Both. Um, pretty much anything you can get addicted to. He struggled with. Mm Mm-hmm. And so after five years, it, it really, first of all, it es- escalated to the point of domestic violence, but mm-hmm. it also really got to the point of like, he is not at a place where he's willing and able to change and mm-hmm. do the work mm-hmm. and it's not safe or healthy for me and my children to remain in this, in this environment anymore. Right. So then you moved to Denver from there. Yes. So, um, filed for divorce and moved down to Denver with my two kiddos. I had basically been a stay-at-home mom almost that whole my whole marriage. Yeah, and so I did not have a college degree. I did not have any work history. Mm-hmm. I really had absolutely nothing, and so I was a single mom, fresh out of an abusive marriage, with nothing.
0: Did you have to escape that marriage? Was it like you fled in the night, or did you? No, like- it was
1: okay. It was definitely it was more of a process. So like, you know, a domestic violence incident and then a separation and then Mm -hmm. the court process. So about, it probably took about a year to go. So that was your first
0: relationship. So that really normalized like, okay, maybe this is what love looks like. Maybe this is totally
1: okay. It completely normalized that I should expect to have a partner that was not necessarily supportive. That was you know, took more than they gave to the relationship Mm -hmm. that had inconsistent behavior that was, you know, that should be excused. So I learned all of those things that, you know, being hurt meant being loved.
0: Right. And so how did you get the courage to ultimately leave that relationship? Like, what was it a moment or was it a flash? Like, whoa, I can't do this anymore. Or was it a gradual?
1: It was definitely, I think there were a couple incidents. So the first was the the domestic violence incident. But at that point I was just like, okay, we need to separate and like, you know, Mm -hmm. go to counseling and work on this. And, and I was still at that point, very dedicated to reconciliation. I grew up in a very conservative Christian home and Mm -hmm. like divorce wasn't like that was the d word. Right. Right? And so I was very fearful and I was 23 like yeah, with two kids. So yes. I was like I don't want to be divorced at 23. Like that's insane. Right. So I think I continue to hold on but I do remember my dad um I think he he took me out to eat or out to coffee or something and I just remember him saying like you know that it's okay to to walk away from this. Mm. And it was like that moment where I didn't realize that I needed permission. Um, But I really needed to hear that um, from my parents because I felt like, you know, getting a divorce was so shameful in the community that I grew up in. And so having their blessing to do so um, was just very validating in that moment.
0: They weren't privy to any of the abuse or were were any of your friends or family? Did they know?
1: They kind of saw bits and pieces, but Mm -hmm. also like, and I'm (laughs) I'm officially finally now working through codependency issues. And so I'm like, oh, I made so many excuses for him and, you know, covered things up. And if he went through a violent rage, like I was the one going to Home Depot to like figure out how to patch the walls and and paint them
0: But I think that's so important to mention because so many people go through a degree of that or a situation like that. It's so true. And there's also the ego involvement. You're like, I married this person. Yeah. Like, I've they're an extension of me. Like, yes. I've got to make it work. Yep. That's so hard. So I'm just in awe of, like, the fact that you got the courage to leave, you know, because that is a really impossible situation to escape from, especially when you're so, so young. So then you ultimately wound up in Denver with no job, two kids, and you were just in a financial lurch, let's call it. And, and you were talking to your friend that told you about a website, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, During my marriage, I really wasn't allowed to talk with, you know, my friends from high school. My Mm. um, husband had kind of, they
0: isolate you, right? Like that's totally socially Mm -hmm. isolated.
1: So I, I spent most of my time with his family, which, you know, they all enabled those behaviors too. So it again, normalized that like, this is what I should be doing. Yes. Yeah. So after we separated, I reconnected with my best friend from high school And just in like a passing conversation, um, she'd come over to my house one day and she was like, Oh my gosh, like I just saw this commercial Mm -hmm. and it was talking about this website that has, um, like you can be a sugar baby and like Mm -hmm. these rich guys take you out to eat and buy you nice things and can help pay your bills. And she was like, think about it. You know, you're fresh out of a marriage. Like you probably don't want to jump into a super serious relationship and she was like, it'd be super nice, like you're a single mom, like you could just go out on the weekend and like, have a nice time, go to places that you couldn't afford, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise, and, and like, h- get help with your bills. And, right. you know, like, that sounds great. Find oh me God. up For that. <laughs> yes.
0: No, that sounds like incredible. When you put it uh-huh. that way, you yeah. know, had your friend done it? Or had, did she just hear a commercial? She, had you ever yeah. heard that
1: term before? I, I sure I had heard like sugaring and sugar babies. Cause I don't remember being confused. Okay. Um, I, I more remember thinking like, actually this line of reasoning makes a lot of sense. Right. Maybe I should at least just check it out. It was totally just like, Hey, I saw this and like, this might be a really good fit. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So then what is that website? It's like, Seeking arrangement. Seeking arrangement. Okay. So, mm-hmm. sugaring, what is the definition of sugaring for people that don't know? Or, like, maybe not definition, but, or like.
1: I was going to say, well, my definition <laughs> is uh, sugar coated prostitution. Okay. So, the way that sugaring is sold is that, okay, so you have this like uh, wealthy benefactor, mm-hmm. and then you have, which is the sugar daddy or the sugar mommy, and then you have the sugar baby. And the. How it's packaged is like, okay, you have this wealthy person who takes you on trips and buys you things and helps you pay your bills. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, the sugar baby goes on dates with them and is basically arm candy. The reality is that the sugar daddies or it's primarily men, expect sex. they're not they're not paying thousands of dollars a month to have dinner with somebody, right. They may take you to dinner first, but the expectation is that sex comes with that. Okay. And I I think that that's where kind of culturally we've kind of turned a blind eye to like what's happening. Yeah. But the reality is like you have somebody in a position of power who has money and you have somebody who is in a position of vulnerability who doesn't have money and they have an exchange of money for sex, which is prostitution.
0: Right. So you did that for how long?
1: I would say... So that was like, right after I was divorced and moved down to Denver, honestly, just a couple months, met a couple, just like weirdo guys. And mm-hmm. was like, I, this is not, again, I thought I really did think at that time, like, oh, I was just going to go out to dinner and like get right. nice things. Cause I'm right. Cute. And then once I realized like, these guys are, you know, as old as my dad and my grandpa and like, they're, they want to have sex. Like that's the expectation is right. I'm not giving you money until I get what I want. Right. And so I was just like, I don't think this is it. Like, I'm gonna go back to school. I'm gonna just get a job. And mm-hmm.
0: what was that moment that you realized? What was that like? How many you know dates or I don't know what they're called had you been on or relationships had you been in to ultimately wind up saying, whoa, 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 I'm doing something that that I didn't think I was going into.
1: Yeah, I want to say like probably three or four, um, and each one was so such like to this day, such a vivid memory of just this like bizarre situation. Like one of the first guys showed up with this giant hairy dog that Mm. like followed us around his apartment and his behavior made me suspect that he was trying to film, um, like the sex act. And so I never went through with anything. I was like, Oh, like I have to go back to my friend's house. Like it was nice to meet you. Like, and would they get angry
0: if you wouldn't have
1: sex with them? he, he seemed kind of disappointed, but it was again, like it was just so his, his behavior was so bizarre that I think he probably realized that he spooked me or like was so nervous himself of whatever he was doing. It It was just weird. So yeah. And then like, I remember going to this guy's house, he was a lawyer. Um, And he actually still lived with his parents, and so we got there, and he was like, "I want you to meet my parents." And I was like, "Oh my god!" I was like, "What is happening? Like, do they know? Like, am I supposed to pretend I'm his girlfriend? Like, what is happening?" And how old was he? He had to have been like in his forties, and I was like twenty three at this time. So I was like, "Met the parents." Oh my god! Yeah, I met his parents, and I was like, (laughs) "I don't know how to act in this situation." Yeah. Um. And so we went. He had kind of this like apartment space off their main house and the entire his entire space was filled with custom built bookshelves of every like porn movie ever made like all kinds of figurines like bobbleheads autographs like swag it was I was like whoa like I'm walking into this guy's fantasy that I had no idea so
0: his parents had clearly never been in his room the, or apartment I just had more
1: and more questions the whole time well, of like yeah. okay so what the hell is aware on? of this yeah. because then they probably aren't worried that you have a sugar baby like right. that's, that's like, the least low on of their the concerns yes yeah <laughs> yes. so yeah it was I it was literally every single interaction was just so weird like that that mm-hmm. I was just like this is I don't I don't yeah do this. would you
0: date outside of that or was that just your main focus
1: Yeah. So this was, I mean, a very short period between like my divorce and then when I met my first trafficker. So Mm -hmm. it was only a couple months and I was really just kind of like hanging out with girlfriends, taking care of my kids. Like that was, that was it that was happening during that time.
0: Okay. I don't want to take a break, but we have to, we'll be right back. Okay. So take us to where you met your first trafficker and can we also like, before maybe we start this, this part of the story, There are three different kinds of pimps. Is that true? So can you tell us a little bit about each?
1: Sure. So there are many different kinds of traffickers. Okay. Yeah. Are they pimps or what's the difference between a pimp and a trafficker or what? Sure. So Polaris, which is the National Human Trafficking Hotline, like they've identified 25 different typologies of Mm -hmm. like where trafficking happens and like who is typically the trafficker in those environments. I have a slightly different model that I've developed for my trainings where we look at there's three different types of third-party traffickers. So think of like a Venn diagram. I never thought I'd use Venn diagrams. You know, you learn them in like fifth grade.
0: Yes, exactly. But they're good for something, evidently. They do.
1: They actually are good for something. (laughs) Yes. So there's pimp traffickers, gang um, trafficking, Mm -hmm. and then familial trafficking. Right, And there's overlap between all of those three, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't, they don't happen in nice neat silos, but those mm-hmm. are generally the types of third-party traffickers. So, okay. Within pimp trafficking, so that's one specific form of trafficking. And it's probably, I would say, stereotypically the one that that society kind of culturally accepts. Like we listen Mm -hmm. to music, like Hustle and Flow, the movie, like that's pimp trafficking. Right. So within pimp-controlled trafficking, there's three kind of disguises or tactics that, that pimps use. So the first one is the boyfriend pimp. Pretty self explanatory, right? So they kind of show up and pretend to be an intimate partner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's really where they learn those vulnerabilities of, mm, of their victim to then exploit. Yep. So okay. they come in as that intimate partner of like, I love you. I want to be with you forever. Like, we're going to have a family. You know, it's just, it's like the Bonnie and Clyde kind of, it's us against the world. The CEO pimp, a lot of pimps start off as boyfriend pimps. And then as they kind of hone their craft, a lot of them become CEO pimps. So CEO pimps typically have like a business front of some sort.
0: And are not guised as your boyfriend or significant other. Okay.
1: No, their disguises are usually more of a business. Okay. So they may have something like um, a massage business, Mm -hmm. or they may say like, you know, I'm a club promoter or a music artist, or it's typically something in the entertainment industry, but not Mm -hmm. always but they also use those businesses to launder their money through. So oftentimes it's a, a business that does a lot of cash-based business. Right, right. And so those traffickers are much more, They're, they're they, it's more of a business relationship. So not that there isn't an intimate component to that, but they typically have larger scale operations. So a boyfriend pimp, like, you know, if you're going to be a player, there's only so many there's only so many girls you can manipulate at any given time. If you're a CEO pimp, all of your victims typically know about each other and they may work together. They may travel together and they kind of see themselves as like a family, like a family business. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So you have the pimp, the CEO, and then the gorilla pimp. Okay. And, um, so gorilla pimps, we've seen it spelled like gorilla, the animal, but also gorilla, like gorilla warfare. So there's a racial connotation with both of those. Interesting, mm-hmm. And that language is what is used. So again, like mirroring language that's used, like this is the language that's being used by people who have experienced this form of trafficking. Okay. But we've seen it spelled both ways. What we know from research on social media is gorilla pimps oftentimes use the gorilla emoji in their profiles. Wow. So like, it's just, that's like a side and is it
0: What's the bunny, what's the bunny thing? like the misspelling of bunny that people use? What's
1: that? So each pimp usually, so pimps have like a street name or a street moniker. And then their victims are essentially like branded both physically and in name with like a nickname that oftentimes relates back to the pimp's name. So it kind of signifies the property, but the spellings can vary too. So like my my second pimp, and we can Mm -hmm. get there in a minute, but like- he had a really specific spelling of using like double vowels at the end of words. And like that was part of his like signature. Right. Um, So all of our nicknames were similar and they were all spelled the same.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I want to get into the whole subculture that exists online of of sex trafficking, but let's go back to the boyfriend pimp when you first met your first trafficker.
1: Yeah. So I, um, was at the time I was working at a private school in Denver and went on my lunch break and, you know, was running errands and ran up the street to go get gas and just met, met a guy, good looking Mm -hmm. guy in a nice car. We exchanged phone numbers, like I I feel like that probably happens a thousand times a day all over absolutely all over the country. Like
0: that's what I think is so important about everything that you talk about. It is in plain sight, all of this. So much of it. It's unbelievable.
1: I think that's what's important to understand. So, you know, we see these viral things on social media of like traffickers are kidnapping trying to kidnap babies at IKEA. Like Mm -hmm. maybe maybe there's an abductor, but traffickers don't tend to operate that way because it's very obvious that something is not right if a complete stranger just walked into, you know, a store and grabbed somebody's child out of the shopping cart, like right. everybody knows that that's wrong. Yes. But if you're at a gas station and you see two young people exchange phone numbers, mm-hmm. you're not going to think anything. You're like, I don't know, maybe they're going to go on a date and live happily ever after.
0: C- ignore it completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, it really started that simply. Did the, it start out as a boyfriend?
0: Like, yep. or, Okay.
1: Yeah. Started out as a boyfriend and so did a lot of, again, what I know now is like traditional love bombing. So like, mm. Oh my gosh, we have such a good connection. Like I just, you know, I feel so connected to you and I, I don't know, like, I can't believe it took us so long to meet and we're going to be together forever. I have such a good feeling. Like all of those things that right. at 23 yep, <laughs> just feels so good yes. to hear. Like, yes. Oh my gosh, this person, like it's this Disney you know prince charming has Everyone's just arrived yeah. and like we're going to be happy forever mm-hmm. and so you know with that he very quickly like gained gained my trust and started to there's financial grooming that happens too so when you i'm a single mom and mm-hmm. financially vulnerable struggling and so he, he would do things like help out with groceries or say, you know, I'm going to take your kids to the mall and buy them new sneakers mm-hmm. as a single mom. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this guy's paying attention yes. to my kids and yes. he's helping out with the house. Like it's, it's just the perfect trap. So he was fully you enmeshed
0: in your family life. Yes.
1: Okay. Yep. hmm Yeah. So, and again, like all of this happened so fast because up until this point, all the pieces have been put into place. Right. So I've been in a domestic violence relationship with somebody struggling with a substance use disorder and then, you know, dabbled in sugaring and had some bizarre experiences. And so when he asked me, he was like, you know, you're, you're so pretty. Like, do you work at a strip club, which is also a part of the grooming process of like, luring somebody in with these gentle suggestions. Okay. Um, so like planting those seeds. And so when he asked me that I was honest and I was like, Oh, well, I've already like, I've done sugaring. I've never done, I've never danced anywhere. Yeah. But in telling him that he was like, she's already had these boundaries violated. Uh-huh. So I don't have to convince her that having sex for money is, has benefits to it. Like right. he knew that, that I'd already been pushed across that.
0: In hindsight, and- had he done this before with other, like he, he was in this business?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes, definitely. Um, so yeah, he, he went through like this whole like kind of grooming and luring process for a couple months. And I think the other piece is, is traffickers are opportunists, right? So they may approach, whether it's in person or on social media, they may approach 50 people a day. Right. And offer to meet basic needs. That's why people in vulnerable positions like economically and socially are so vulnerable because you have so many basic needs that need to be met. So, yeah, me and my
0: friends even get messages like DMs all the time and it's So it's super it's it's right there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And all you have to do is have one success. Right. Right. And that's why social media is so. It can be used so dangerously by traffickers because they can do that from the comfort of their own home, and they just Absolutely. copy and paste messages.
0: Right, and but it just takes it one takes, vulnerable person. Just
1: one. That's mm-hmm. all it takes is one person to engage in conversation with them. Right.
0: So, so as he's luring you, what does that look like? Like, did he get you to go to a strip club, or how did you start out?
1: So I was, I was like, well, I did sugaring, like, but in my head, I was like, I. I could never see myself having an intimate partner and doing sugaring at the same time. Like to me, that was cheating. Right. I, I like, I didn't know anything about trafficking that it wasn't even a word. Of course. So I was like, well, I did it, but like we're together now, so I'm not doing it now. And so he continued to plant these seeds of like, you know, I, I had an, uh, my ex-girlfriend work and worked in like a happy endings massage parlor Okay. and I was totally okay with it. Like that was her work that, Mm -hmm. that wasn't, you know, that wasn't love that she was doing. She was making money. Mm -hmm. And so he just kept saying these little things that, you know, over time I'm starting to justify in my head, like, well, I could make more money. It's not cheating. He'd still love me. Like I could have everything I wanted. I could have a partner that loved me and I could be financially secure. So over time I was like, well, maybe, and I just, I was not comfortable at that point working in a strip club. And so he kind of shifted his tactic and was like, well, you know, why don't you, you could do the sugaring thing again. Like Mm -hmm. I can protect you and make sure you're safe and all these things. So that was all happening, but then there was this undercurrent of other stuff that was happening. And that's why I say pimps are opportunists. So at the same time, this was 2008. I still owned a house with my ex-husband, right? And um, the market crashed. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. And him and like us and everyone else in the, in the U.S. defaulted on on mortgages. And he did not tell me that he had not paid the mortgage in several months. And so he finally called to tell me, like, I I can't pay the mortgage this month. So I called the bank. And they were like, actually, you haven't paid in three months and we Uh, haven't heard anything. Like we're about to start the foreclosure process for you guys.
0: So you're extremely financially vulnerable.
1: Yes. And then, um, like a week later, he called my ex-husband called back and said, like, I can't pay you child support anymore either, even though the court ordered to do so. So that was half Uh, of my income was gone. Right. And now I have like a mortgage, 50% less income. And then Mm -hmm. within a couple of weeks, my car broke down. Oh, my God. It was was literally the perfect storm of events. Absolutely. And this knight in shining armor is just waiting. Right. So he's laid all the groundwork. Yeah. And he's just waiting to turn up the heat, basically. And
0: there was no abuse with this boyfriend, aside from, of course, what transpired after, but.
1: Yeah. He, he became increasingly violent over time, okay. but that okay. was still very much like the honeymoon process Love bombing. Of, yep, okay. of like, he's just this great, amazing guy. So the violence kind of came later once I was trapped.
0: Okay. Okay. So then how did you start out? So he said, I'm going to send you on your first date or what did he call it? How did, did you guys have a conversation?
1: So at that point he said, um, he was like, well, I, I remember calling him and just being in a panic. Cause I was like, I don't have any money. My car broke down. Like I, I do not know what to do. And of course he had the solution, right? So he was like, of let course. me show you how to post an ad on back page and I'll, I'll show you what to put in it, what pictures to put, how much money. And then I'll show you how to like, I'll coach you through what to do.
0: Okay. So forgive me. Like, I I'm going to ask you all the details of the, sure. these things. Back page is not like seeking arrangement, right? It's so, how is this one different, this website?
1: So, Backpage, I always ask people like, most people have heard of Craigslist, right? Like, we all know Craigslist. Yeah. So, Backpage and Craigslist are like Pepsi and Coke. Like, they're oh, they okay. almost the exact same company, like, just slightly or similar, but like different flavors, kind of different companies. And so, Craigslist at that time had, um, I don't know if you'll remember this, the Craigslist killer. Oh, um, yes. which was a sex buyer who had a gambling addiction. Right. And in order to pay back his debt, he started setting up like prostitution transactions with that. girls and mm-hmm. ended up like killing several of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so Craigslist kind of came under fire at that time and they shut down their adult services section because of all of this attention that was happening. Right. And all of that rolled onto back page. Okay. And so Backpage really, like, you can get a couch. You you could get a couch on Backpage. Oh, okay. You know, So it's not,
0: like, specifically,
1: like, adult services. Okay. No, it was, like, you could get a couch. You could find a pottery class. Yeah. You know, you could do job searches. Like, it was just like Craigslist. Like, lots of things. But then there was this adult services section.
0: Okay, but that is legal,
1: theoretically? Um, Well, their defense. So, again, like, this is where... Backpage has thrown probably billions of dollars at this point. They're actually in trial right now. They're executives. I'm testifying next week. Deservedly so. Yes. Yes. So initially they hid behind a couple of things. So first of all, if it's, it's not illegal to pay somebody for their time. Uh-huh. And so as long as you're not saying like, I will do X, Y, Z sex act for this amount of money it's technically like not prostitution. Okay. And so they really started Backpage started to kind of clamp down on like you could eventually you were not allowed to put rates and stuff in your ads and you couldn't say like what it was for. Backpage I think initially it was an accident how all of that kind of transpired and like they were like making a little money whatever um the executives Mm -hmm. eventually got to a place where they were knowingly facilitating trafficking. Wow. And covering it up and not reporting it to law enforcement, which is what the trial is that's going on right now.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. So you made a back page profile and did you just get flooded with messages immediately?
1: Yeah. So back then, this is like one of those back in the days. So back in the day, just for context of like, how big Backpage became and like how accessible paying for sex be- became. So in 2008, 2009, um, in Denver, you could post one ad a week in the adult services section. Because there was like 10 ads and your phone would just ring and ring and ring and ring 24 wow. hours a day for that whole week. And then you'd have to post like a new ad a week later. By 2018, when Backpage was seized, mm-hmm. um, they... Denver, I want to say had probably 200 ads a day and you would have to bump your ad like several times a day to stay at the top. Like it was insane by the end.
0: Wow. So your first date, like, can you take me through that whole period of your life? I'm sorry. Like, I know you're, sure. you're, you're rounding the corner of not wanting to tell your story. Yep. And I'm like, tell your story in <laughs> intimate detail.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that process was so, I was so scared. Like I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. So I had to trust Mm -hmm. this man who I thought was my boyfriend, but was actually my pimp. I had to trust him. And I didn't feel like I had any other options Mm -hmm. of like, I don't have any supports. I don't know how to access resources. I don't qualify for resources. I don't have any other options in this moment to not end up homeless and not able to feed my children. right? And, um, so he, he walked me through the whole process of how to post an ad, how to answer the phone, Mm -hmm. um, how to negotiate prices, um, how to check in with him. So I would drive to wherever the person was located Mm -hmm. and I would have to call and check in with him and let him know, like, I got the money. I'm okay. I'm going inside you know, call him as soon as I left. And so he had like the address and, and had information. And I initially thought that he was trying to protect me and keep me safe of like, if something happens, like he can come get me and save me. What really ultimately happened big picture was once he knew that I was programmed and trained to do those things, he stopped Supervising me at that level because he knew, like, uh-huh. she's gonna go, she's gonna follow the rules, she's gonna come back and, and give I'm me the money. the money.
0: So, did you have access to any of that money at that time? Like, were your kids fed and okay, or like, did he take all the money?
1: So, boyfriend pimps. I actually did a project because this is where my like research nerd side of I love. Digging into some of these experiences. Because you have a
0: sociology Um, degree, right
1: now? Yes. Yes. Yeah. My master's is in sociology. Which we'll get into. Yes. Yeah.
0: It's incredible.
1: So I have um, my bank statements from this time period still. And so I did a um, project with Polaris Mm -hmm. um, where I analyzed my bank statements and looked at the difference between the boyfriend pimp and the CEO pimp. Right. And I work with folks in the financial. Sector now to teach them these things of like this is what to look for, and here's the context. So oh, that's brilliant. It's oh so, my gosh. It's those are the things that I'm like, this is meaningfully telling my story now. Right. Being able exactly. to like, well, you look at my bank statements, I can tell you the story behind them and it, they mm-hmm. will make sense contextually. Right. So I have that report. Um, and one of the big findings from that was that boyfriend pimps operate very differently financially than CEO pimps. So boyfriend pimps, um, financial transactions typically mimic like just a standard bank account behavior. So like a regular weekly deposit at the mm-hmm. end of the week, bills come out of it. It's cash based, right? Yep. It's okay. yeah, like a cash, cash deposit once a week, And so how he would do it is I had to pay my bills first and then he took all of the extra money. So I didn't have money to like pay off a credit card. I didn't have money to save up. I was able to like just pay my bills and then he took everything else. And the CEO pimps, they operate more in like a debt bondage style. Mm -hmm. So they take all of the money and then you have to bring them like your light bill. And if your light bill is like $181.62, they give you $182 and you have to go pay that like two days after it's due. So they know that you're going to pay it. And so it like the behaviors are totally different. So each trafficker typology can look very different um, based on how that relationship is framed for the victim.
0: Wow. How valuable to have your primary resource, you know, like
1: information.
0: It's like all this stuff that is happening in plain sight, as we said, right. but it is detectable if you yep. know the information.
1: Yep. If you have the context behind it, you can see it.
0: Wow. Okay. We got to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay. So then how long from start to finish did you work under the boyfriend pimp?
1: Um, About three and a half, four years. And I think I went at one time through and counted the times that I tried to escape. And I think I tried to escape about five or six times, okay, which research shows is it takes about six six attempts. To wow, really, stay. Yeah, really.
0: What is the culture? You know, like is there protection? do is it commonplace to use condoms?
1: Um in commercial sex transactions, yes, absolutely. So within pimp culture specifically, it's actually like condom use is strongly, strongly recommended within the community. Um, There's a lot of, like, social shaming and, like, just community policing of, like, you need to wear condoms and you need to get tested and you need to be safe because this is incredibly high risk. Right. Where you see the pressure coming is from the sex buyers who don't want to use condoms, Mm -hmm. which is so mind-blowing because you're like, you're going back to your wife. Like, why?
0: Exactly. No, I was thinking that the CEO pimp or whomever would get a call from an angry buyer saying she gave me chlamydia or whatever.
1: Yeah. It's one of those like really unfortunate stereotypes. I think of people in prostitution of like, you know, we're just rife with STIs and like, yes, absolutely. You can get an STI. It's incredibly high risk. And also people in prostitution are not just like generating STIs within our bodies, right? Like we're getting them from our buyers and our traffickers. Yes. And those are the folks that like, we need to be having conversations about them not blaming us as victims.
0: Absolutely. So like in your experience, and you know, maybe it's more your research, when you were under the CEO pimp, it was understood you were going for sex, you would go to have Mm -hmm. sex with these people. What is that like, on a psychological level? Obviously, it's impossible to say exactly, because it's different for everyone. But is there a lot of body, uh, abandoning your body and disassociating
1: that happens? Oh, good question. This is like one of my favorite things to talk about. Okay, nobody good. ever asks it. <laughs> oh, good.
0: That makes me so happy.
1: So yes, um, one of the, like the lasting PTSD side effects that I struggle with and most survivors do is some level of dissociation.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so you see with familial trafficking, because that happens sometimes as early as birth, Right. Um, like, like the more severe dissociation, which is like dissociative identity disorder, all the way through like, you know, just feelings of floating or disconnecting from your body on like the less severe side of things. One of the coping mechanisms that pimp traffickers provide their victims is this like alternate identity or like a oh, stage wow. name. And so, and you see stage names in all parts of the commercial sex trade, right? Like, so people that work in strip clubs, like they typically have like a dancer name or a stage name. And so oftentimes pimp controlled victims are given this like kind of pseudo identity and it ultimately is a protective factor and what I've found anecdotally in my research is mm-hmm. that the types of traffickers that do not assign these stage names to their victims and instead use their their actual identity and they're yeah. like you know Megan is trafficked, not this other person they, struggle so much with recovery because they cannot separate what happened to them. So it is, it's so fascinating. And I, there's not, I don't know that there's any research really on it with this particular population, but you know, my, I had several different stage names, my Mm -hmm. most popular one, which has grown to this day is Avery
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: Avery, like I got to become Avery. And so even in processing my trauma, yes, like the most traumatic experiences were with sex buyers who knew my real information because they were like long time customers who paid for, you know, plane tickets and that kind of stuff for me. Right. But they knew me. And so like Mm. that sticks, Mm. that sticks below your skin kind of. But things that happened to Avery, I was able to like become her and then come back into megan and be megan. So there's a really good book called Being and Being Bought. Okay, I'm writing that down. I'm oh my gosh, it's so good. It took me honestly probably like 6 months to read because it's so heavy. So I could read like a half a chapter and then I was like, oh, I have to sit with this. But it, it essentially talks about research and I want to say the author is Swedish, so it's been translated to English. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. I'll buy it right after this learning about dissociation and, and the separation from self. Um, and so she has a whole chapter in this book where she actually talks about a lot of survivors of prostitution talk about escaping into their head Mm. and a lot of survivors of prostitution. Like we don't want our heads touched. We don't want our faces touched. And ultimately that's because like, that's where our self has climbed up into so that buyers can do whatever they want to our bodies. It's so fascinating. And I like, there needs to be more research on it because just what we've seen with survivors, I'm like this, there is a protective factor to be given a different identity that you can become.
0: Yes. And that's so important for people to know, just like if they ever encounter, you know, someone recovering and healing from being a former trafficked individual, like, not wanting your head or face touch. That's such an interesting and, but it makes so much sense. So much sense
1: in that you context. Know? It makes Absolutely. so much sense. Absolutely.
0: Wow. So do you find yourself still diso- able to dissociate? And like, do you find yourself ever
1: doing that now? Definitely. It's again, like it's a, it's a coping skill and it's a yeah. protective factor. And so I am now more aware when I do it and I have the coping skills to either realize like, I am so overwhelmed in this situation that it's time for me to set boundaries to protect myself and leave. Right. Um, which can happen just in, in standard social settings. Like I get super overwhelmed in very loud, crowded places. Yes. And, and so like, sometimes it's just a warning sign of it's time to do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, other times it is a warning of like this person or environment is very dangerous and Mm -hmm. I don't have the ability to leave in this moment so yeah i've i've I think the biggest piece is just getting more aware of when it happens and and building up coping skills to stay grounded
0: right so fascinating because it's almost like there's no better in the situation at all it either is terrible, you know, but mm-hmm. it is interesting the people that had to use their real name and their real identity and then the people that were able to have a stage name or have an alternate identity and the different healing that has to transpire for each group. That's fascinating. I never knew about any of that.
1: It's so interesting. And we kind of, you know, obviously when you, when you work in tough, tough fields, you have to have kind of dark humor. Of Um, but I work with, you know, a lot of our staff here is also survivors. And so there are some of us on staff who, you know, are at a place in our healing where we're like, you know, Avery had to, come out and handle business today right. because you right. know, there's still this this other identity that's still you can take there. ownership
0: of it uh-huh. rather than destroying it
1: because that might right. be impossible. Right. And just naming that you know it's there and I've I've integrated a lot of the important pieces and and continue to do my healing. But there's also this piece. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. And now you've named your foundation, the Avery Center, which is so incredible. Like that's such a beautifully poetic way of taking that back, that identity back.
1: It was such a like, we, our team talked for hours about our name and we tried so many different things. And then all of a sudden I was like, what about the Avery Center? Like it was just so simple. brilliant, And so... Powerful, yes. Like it's just representative of this journey and what is possible, and it's not—it's not just my story, right? It's so many survivor stories. Absolutely.
0: So, can you take me to when the CEO pimp first entered your life?
1: Yeah. So, CEO pimps, again, just like by definition, they're all about business. So, the boyfriend pimp, I would say, relative. You know, I had a less strenuous schedule, mm. less strenuous financial expectations, because it was still all couched within this context of an intimate partner relationship. Right. So like, we still had to go out as a family and like right. go do Cuddled fun and things and watch movies. And right. Yeah. Like that's part of this whole mm-hmm. facade, a CEO pimp is all about business. And mm-hmm. so there was a very rigid quota. There was very rigid house rules, like expectations of how to answer your phone Mm-hmm. You know how to respond to questions. House rules, meaning, did you live with them? So I lived um just a couple of blocks away from my trafficker. Okay. Um, different and again, different traffickers have different setups. So some traffickers have all of their victims that live in the same house. Sometimes the trafficker lives with all of their victims. Okay. Because I had children, I lived independently, and I also had had, you know, three or four years of brainwashing at this right. point. And so when I came under his control, he knew that like I was, I wasn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like I was going to follow instructions. So yeah. So lived independently, but very involved. Like everybody had everybody's house keys and garage door openers. So
0: very enmeshed. Yes. Okay. And how did you meet the CEO pimp? Like what was that transition from the boyfriend pimp to CEO pimp?
1: When I escaped the boyfriend pimp for the last time, he got incredibly violent. I actually still have a, a permanent restraining order against him, which ultimately didn't help. Like I'd right. call the police, he'd be sitting in my parking lot and I call the police and they're like, well, he's in an apartment complex parking lot. Like, and he's X number of feet away. Like we can't, he's not violating it. Even though like they were like, we see what he's doing, but like you yes. can't enforce anything.
0: That's really important Ugh. to mention because. The reality is, police can do very little about domestic violence unless something is actually happening. So, if you're just fearful or feeling threatened, there's not a lot they can do to help you out. It's terrible. Yep.
1: And same thing, like, I and I love doing trainings with law enforcement because I'm like, mm-hmm. there were so many oppor- missed yes. opportunities. Yes. And and so I always say, you know, like I had that restraining order, but after calling them like five times, I realized the only time these papers are gonna protect me is if he's physically attacking me, mm-hmm. I can hit him with the papers. Yeah. Like that's so true. That's what this is good for. It's
0: so true.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. So I was terrified. He just terrorized me. I would barricade my door at night. My kids were oh, terrified. My God. This was before. So just a couple years ago, Colorado actually passed um, new legislation. So if you're in a domestic violence situation, you can actually break your lease now. Okay. But when I was being trafficked, like I went to my landlord and that law didn't exist here in Colorado. Oh. And so the landlord literally told me you can sign a new 12 month lease in the same building. We'll just move you to a different unit. That was my option oh, at the time. Oh my God. And I was like, I what? Like, I'm still gonna die if I yeah, stay here. Absolutely. So I was I was trapped. I was physically and financially trapped in this situation. Um, and I had um a regular customer who was like, I want to take you to Vegas with me. You've had mm-hmm. so much stress, like it's my birthday. Come out with me, bring a friend, you guys can like hang out and do whatever all day. He wanted to go s- to some shows and stuff he was like, I want to have dinner and like hang out with you guys Mm -hmm. in the evening. So I took my friend with me to Vegas. And again, like met this guy just by chance. We were, Mm -hmm. you know, walking between two casinos and he was in a super nice car. I think the lesson here is like, don't talk to nice looking guys in nice cars because (laughs) (laughs) clearly I have a pattern of behavior here. Yes. So again, like he pulled up and was like, you know, where are you girls going? Like I'm from Vegas. I'd love to show you around. I can take you to all like the hot spots. And mm. he was a West Coast rapper. and um I was just like completely enamored. Like I grew up in a small cow town. I you know lived in Denver. so like Vegas was just this like flashy lights and money. And I was I just was he was like
0: a, a like a, a known rapper.
1: I would say on the West coast he's okay. known and he's done a lot of collaborations with other like very well-known West coast. Rappers. Okay. okay. So at that time, like he took us back to his house. He had a mansion. He mm. had like all of these foreign luxury cars. He had a recording studio in his house. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, this guy's a real deal. Like, right. Starstruck. And so I actually have several tattoos that are very specific to pimp control. mm. And one of them says MOB, which is money over bitches. And so he saw that and he like almost instantly knew. So again, we're seeing these things, but we're not realizing what's actually happening in this and like what it actually means and where it comes from. Yes. So he saw that and he was like, you know, why are you out here in Vegas? And I was like, oh, like just out here with friends and, um, you know, he asked if I had a boyfriend and I was like, no, like I had a boyfriend, but he's been stalking and harassing me. Mm -hmm. So over the course of like several conversations, I finally disclosed, like I'm in prostitution and he's Mm -hmm. like, this is Vegas. Like everybody's in prostitution out here. Like you don't, you don't have to keep a secret from me. Right. But essentially like over the next several months, again, went through that grooming process, but it was very different this time of I can protect you from this guy mm-hmm. who is crazy and like police can't even get him to stop. Right. But I can because right. I'm also a pimp and like we have our own set of rules. Uh-huh. And and he was like you need to move out to Vegas and you know if you move out here like you can make so much money. Mm-hmm. He was like I'm about to sign uh like a record deal and you know I can I can make you famous which is very common like grooming with CEO pimps. So after like, you know, the summer of continuing to be harassed and stalked by the boyfriend pimp, I was like, I feel like this is my best option is to move away, you know, put physical distance between me and the the boyfriend pimp to have protection from this guy who seemed super nice and like successful by, by like any standard And going to Vegas, like I could make a lot more money Mm -hmm. much quicker and like get out of this that much quicker. Right. Um, Right. So that's, so you were always, you
0: had the thought, okay, I'll be able to get out of this quicker. Do you ever think this is going to be my whole life? This is totally fine.
1: No, I always knew uh, from the very beginning, I knew like going in that I wanted out as fast as possible. Okay in my head, I picked a number at the time of 27. And I was like, I want to get out. I just knew I didn't want to still be in at 30, which I don't know why, because let's be honest, 30s are like the best age. But we all do
0: it about, we're like, (laughs) 30 is the destination. And then you get to 30 and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah.
1: At 30, you're like, wait a minute. Like actually now I'm going to start living for myself. Exactly. So yeah. So I just was like, 30 is so old. Like I, I need to be out of this by then. And, and so, I mean, thankfully, I think I got out at 28. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About 28. Wow. So I I would say most, most people that I've talked with either through research or just as, you know, survivor siblings, everybody starts wanting to get out the day that they get in. Um, mm. Not all have access to the resources that I did when I was, fully ready and able to get out of course you know to be able to accomplish that goal i think right. that was you know sheer chance of
0: course so how many years were you with the ceo pimp um, just under 1 year just under 1 year mm-hmm. okay and then and then did you work on your own
1: Yeah. So after escaping him, so I went to jail about ten times that one year. year. Wow! Mm
0: -hmm. Because they just recognized you, like the cops patrol the Vegas Strip, kind of. Is that where you were?
1: So vice in in Vegas is very active. Historically, their strategy has been: let's go after the primarily women in prostitution, and hopefully, by arresting them, some of them will tell us about their pimps and they've just never done it any differently. I think, I think a lot of jurisdictions have done that. And we're just now starting to see a shift in like, that's never worked. It's never been a successful tactic. Like let's try something else.
0: Right. And is it like the movies where like, you're just literally hanging out on the sunset strip in heels or like, are you on the phone? Like you go up to people's cars or like, what's it really like?
1: Yeah. So there's, all kinds of venues for prostitution, particularly in Vegas, is kind of this like just combination of everything. So, what's most common in Vegas is track or street prostitution. Okay. In certain parts, like Boulder Highway, but then also carpets, which is the casinos. So, literally just walking through casinos and soliciting strangers. Okay. There's also like call girl and escort, like agencies where they post ads online and answer phones and like send girls to hotel rooms.
0: But you were primarily Um, on foot.
1: I was, I, I worked carpets in Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was, you go play blackjack with some guy for several hours and yeah. And And how does that
0: conversation go? Yeah. I guess I, it's hard for me to like imagine outside of a movie scene, you know, is it, is it like that? Like, are you like, how do you make them understand that you're not in it for a relationship? You know or like sure. you know that's kind of
1: what I'm like. Yeah, wondering. and I think also like as a woman like I've gone to Vegas and I've never been solicited by anybody. And so I honestly think that it happens so frequently to men, particularly in Vegas that like most of the men that you approach know to expect it, or they've at least heard, you know, there's, sure, you know, there's women that'll approach you and like solicit, you know, for sex. Um, so most men and, you know, you can, some of them, you'd have to approach them and kind of walk them through the conclusion of like, no, you have to pay for my time. Yes. Quote unquote time. But there was absolutely other men who very clearly have been in Vegas before and they'd walk by you and say, are you working tonight? Like, oh, can you come up to my room? Like, how much do you charge? So some of it was like very just blunt in your face.
0: Wow. OK, so tell me about the times that you were arrested. Would your CEO pimp get you out of those situations? Because I would imagine that yep. would get expensive.
1: Yeah. it And it, it was. And so here's what's so crazy, especially like with Vegas where vice squad was so active like that, Mm -hmm. like my trafficker, I went to jail my very first night in Vegas. Wow.
0: And that didn't scare. Like, I mean, you, how you needed to get out of the situation.
1: Yeah. I was, yeah, I was terrified and like, my pimp bailed me out. Mm -hmm. I was with, um, what's referred to like his bottom bitch. Um, like she was showing me how to work the carpets. And so we got arrested together and she's like, I've been arrested before. Like Mm -hmm. just be quiet. They'll just Mm -hmm. book us. He'll bail us out. And so I think had I not been with her, I probably would have been like, Oh my gosh, I cannot do this. But because she normalized it, I was like, okay, like we, this is just how it goes. So when we got out, my pimp was like, you know, you're, you're going to get felony money out here, but you're only going to get misdemeanor charges. Like, don't even worry okay. about these arrests. Right. And I was like, okay, like, I guess I don't, I don't know anything. So yeah. yeah. So he course. had a lawyer who knew that he was a pimp mm-hmm. um, and he paid her like all of our fees and like, we'd go see her together. Like, it was very obvious. Like, wow. So what wait. was happening? Okay. The like bail bonds places in Vegas, you used to be able to go there. I don't know if this is still the case, but you could go at like five, six o'clock in the morning and the parking lots would be full with pimps waiting to go bail their girls out. Wow. Um, like it's it's just like a part of the local wow. economy, basically. Yeah. Yes. So like everybody knew what was going on, which mm-hmm. is why like the law enforcement strategy, I was like, this is yeah. This is not effective for the amount of trafficking that's happening out Yes, here. Wow.
0: Okay. So he'd bail you out every time. So you were kind of just like, you know, it's okay. And then how did you t- take me through the end of that situation? So you got arrested for the 11th time, did you say? Or
1: I got arrested 10 times. in With him. With him. And then. So towards the end of that year, I just started getting burned out and started to realize, like, so I had like a little paper, like calendar, day timer thing, Mm -hmm. and I was tracking every night, like how much money I had made Mm. in this calendar, right? And you know, a thousand dollars a day quota for a year, like that's a lot of money.
0: I'll say yes.
1: And and I was like, you know, I'm driving this like beater car, Mm -hmm. you know, he you know, give me a little bit of money to like go get clothes, but I couldn't spend it on anything other than like clothes that you're going to walk around in stilettos in a casino. And of course, so I was like, I feel like I've made quite a bit of money and like, I haven't, you know, I'm renting a place. I have this old car, like, I, I get my hair and nails done, but like, that's not for me. That's for marketing.
0: And you follow so many other sex workers on social media, right? Like that was a factor too. You were like, wait, someone I know is like all these other girls are getting cars and getting material items that I'm not getting.
1: Okay. Yep. Yeah. And so I started to see like, you know, girls get cars bought for them Mm -hmm. or, like anything significant. And right. I was just like, I'm not getting anything. Like how long do I have to like put in time in this, mm-hmm. in this like CEO pimp operation to like start getting these things. Right. And Were you working every night? Yes. Every Seven days a night. week. Seven, wow. Yep. Seven days a week. Um, wow. When I would get arrested, I would get sent out of town for like a week. Okay. So yeah. So I've, I've been trafficked in like 23 States, I think. Wow. Wow. Okay. Just, you know, I'd be sent away to just kind of let things die down. So I have a lot of tattoos. I had really long blonde hair with like pink highlights in it at the time. Yeah. So Vice recognized me. I'm super tall. Yeah. So towards the end of that, I just was like, this isn't, it's literally not adding up. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yes. I could have paid cash now for like two or three luxury cars. Right. Much less like, you know, getting a car note for one, like, I'm not even allowed to do that. Like, I don't understand what's going on. So my motivation started to, to drop. And, um, he basically put me on house arrest and was like, if you're not going to make your quotas, I'm taking away your babysitter and you're just going to sit in the house until you figure this out. And he, I think his motive originally had been to, It was basically like a game of financial chicken. Like, are Mm -hmm. you gonna do what I want you to do before you run out of food? Right. And during that time, I honestly like there's this is where I'm like, I don't know, I was probably dissociated, sleep deprived. Yeah. But I ended up getting this book, um, ordering a book that was written by a pimp. Uh And I really I got it because I was like, I'm not being pimped right, or like I'm not right. Like I'm not doing it right, like I'm doing something wrong how do I do this right? So that I can have all the things that I'm being told I can have. Isn't
0: it unbelievable? We blame ourselves. Like even, that that was
1: my first thought I'm doing something wrong in this situation. So I read this book, like literally in one day cover to cover and was like, Oh my gosh, like this book just detailed how to pit girls against each other and get them to compete with one another so that they're so distracted And you can like as a pimp, you can go do whatever you want because the girls are fighting and like, right, just detailed all this stuff. And I was like, I'm, I'm not being pimped wrong. Like, this is how it's supposed to go. I'm not ever going to win at this game. Right.
0: So that's the moment that you realize getting out of that situation was probably next to impossible. I would imagine. Right. What were the first steps you took towards freedom?
1: So at that point, I called my dad, and uh, he, my parents knew that I was getting arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how they found out I was involved in prostitution, but they didn't mm. know that I had a pimp. Like they didn't okay. even know. Again, like this was 2008, like trafficking. Addressing trafficking here in the United States didn't really start until 2010. Right. Um, So it wasn't even on their radar when they called places asking for help to be like, here's a trafficking screening like that. It wasn't a thing. Yes. So they knew they knew that it was bad out there. They just didn't they didn't have language to, of course, like understand it. So I was just like, I'm alone out here. Like, I need to come home. And Mm -hmm. so. Um, my sister came out and helped me pack up my stuff and move home. Um, I actually called my pimp and was like, I can't do this out here. Like I I'm leaving and his response. So again, like when you're thinking about like boyfriend pimps and CEO mm-hmm. pimps. And um, so his response was very different from my first pimp because in Vegas, there are so many vulnerable people mm. that I was really, easily replaced. So wow. in a 16-hour drive home from Vegas to Colorado,
0: mm-hmm.
1: he found two women to replace me. Like in 16 hours. It, so he didn't need he didn't have this like loss of control and like need to stalk and harass me okay. after the fact. He just like the the risk of that to him was greater than the reward right. of like I'm not going to force you to, now that you've woken up and realized, you know, this game I've been running. Like, I'm not going to force you to stay here because that's where it's going to get dangerous for me. And so he didn't, he just said like, I don't want to see your face in Vegas again. And I okay. was like, deal. Yeah, like you're like, I'm on
0: my way already. <laughs> I'm out. So were you afraid that the boyfriend pimp would come back to
1: find you? He actually called me the week that I left my pimp and I was still in Vegas and I was packing up to move. And I had not heard from the boyfriend pimp now in, in like a year because the CEO pimp had called him and had a conversation with him and was like, she's mine, leave her alone.
0: Cause there's a rule, right. That you have to be under
1: like pimp control
0: yep. or ownership at all times. Right. So yep. you have to literally, tra- it's like a transfer of power. Yes. Like,
1: okay. Yep. Absolutely. So it was really bizarre. Cause I was like, I haven't posted anything on social media. Like I haven't said anything to anybody. And he called me that week I was packing. I remember being in the living room and getting a mm-hmm. call from him and being like, oh my gosh, like, how did you know this? Um, and so he kind of, uh, the phone call was weird. Like he said he was coming out to Vegas. He didn't mm-hmm. want any problems, but I also felt like it was more trying to get a feel for when I go back to him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And at that point, again, like I just, the spell had been broken and I was like, I, I see what you, what you guys do. Like I get it now and I don't want any part of it. So I didn't tell him anything. I just remained pretty neutral on the phone and then was like, yeah, okay. I got to go. Yeah. So when I moved back to Colorado though, I was terrified. Like I did not post anything on social media about my location. I still don't to this day. Like I'm so, so paranoid, like locked down all of my social media accounts. I have, I had like a PO box set up so that I didn't get mail to my address. Like I didn't have people over. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, that went on for several years after I finally got out because I was just terrified. And I'm still, because I speak publicly now, I'm like, these guys, if they happen to see anything that I'm talking about, take offense to it, like, I don't want to be an easy target.
0: Right. So how do you avoid being an easy target? Like not using their names and... Mm -hmm. And not being super active on social media. And, like, you know that world so well. So you kind of know where they live and, like, where to avoid them,
1: right? Yep. Yep. And, like, also, there is this element of... Not to say that pimps aren't violent and aren't dangerous. But once they know that the spell has been broken, they they aren't gonna like work to take that back. So same thing with any abuser, like when that abuse becomes public, like they're so focused on maintaining their public image, right. That they've sold to everybody that they don't want to do anything publicly to like bring attention to them. So not, and again, like it's, it's very possible like that, I could piss somebody off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't name them publicly. I leave out a lot of identifying factors because I, I don't want people like, that's not the point is to call them out publicly.
0: Right. You're doing so
1: much more than right. Like my focus is not to me, justice in my situation is not just them, but eradicating this whole pimp culture as a whole. And so I can do that most effectively by not naming them as individuals. Absolutely.
0: But so I wonder, like, just in your experience, I'll just ask you a few more questions. But to round this out in your experience, my main goal, you know, with talking to you is really to get people to understand how hard it is to leave for a multitude of reasons and also to understand so many To establish some empathy, there is really no other choice in so many situations and Mm -hmm. like that it can happen to anyone and it happens every day to your neighbors and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But so in your experience, have you found like there are probably three things, right? There's this issue of like a trauma bond or... There's probably like a degree of Stockholm syndrome and trauma Mm -hmm. bonding, so that that can make you stay. But then there's also a security issue, like if you have a situation Mm -hmm. like your CEO pimp helped you out of your situation, so protected you in theory from this other guy. And then there's the money aspect, the Mm -hmm. financial insecurity. Are those three things typically equal, have you found, or is, is one more prevalent
1: than the rest for why the spell is broken? Such a good question. And I think it varies on individual experience and also like there's so many factors. So like gang controlled trafficking, what we know from the Avery Center's research is individuals who have existing substance use disorders are most likely to be trafficked by gangs Mm. and gangs are the most horrifically physically violent of the types of traffickers. And so, when you pair that with a substance use disorder, or even like you pair substance use disorder with a trauma bond, Mm -hmm. like that's, I mean, it's just cements you into that situation. And so, if you have like layer after layer of factors, it's so difficult to untangle yourself. But Mm -hmm. it's also why I think it's so important that, like, in the anti trafficking field, we cannot just be focused on like, you know let's shut down this website because we need to be looking at like what is happening to those people because you know when backpage came down like again like they need to be held accountable right. and also as a direct service provider i was on the other side of that too so i was a survivor that was like yes like yeah. finally mm-hmm. that like something's being done and as a service provider i'm getting calls from women that are saying like my rent is due and like right. i don't have a way to make money or right. my pimp still has a quota like when, just because Backpage gets shut down, like pimps weren't like, oh, well, I guess I'm done here.
0: Which speaks to the only fans issue. Like mm-hmm. when they were going to, yes. wow, that's so interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah. So we, we need to be looking at a lot of those systemic Absolutely. issues of like, why are people vulnerable either right. before or during their time in the commercial sex trade and yes. fixing those systemic issues first. So if there's no affordable housing in your area or you have a criminal record and you can't access housing, like you're going to be trapped in this vicious cycle of exploitation yes. forever and like how are you going to pay your rent? Like let's solve that problem so that people can have access to housing.
0: Right. Escaping then, and exiting is just yeah. the beginning of your yeah. story. Absolutely. And you
1: can't you can't expect people like whether we like it or not prostitution and like commercial sex work is it's a means of income, whether you have a third party trafficker or not, it's a means of survival. And so when somebody exits, they're essentially quitting their job. And when you look at those systemic pieces, like, are they able to leave and just like, go find another job? Can they just go apply? Typically not. Typically there are barriers to that. And so we can't expect people to just literally hang up the heels and like, go do something else with their life. We have to be, we have to have support services. In that oh,
0: yes. No, absolutely. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about people that are prostituted? You know, from everything from like, is substance abuse pretty prevalent in that community? Is it mostly children? Is it mostly women? Or what is the truth?
1: Oh gosh. There are probably a uh... lot. <laughs> There's so many things. <laughs> I think like one of the biggest narratives that is so widely accepted in our society is that most people in the commercial sex trade are adult consenting sex workers, if you will. The reality is that study after study after study show that, yes, those folks absolutely exist and their experiences are valid and they are not the majority. And so... I I have a survivor sister and colleague who does amazing work on social media as well. And she posted a couple of weeks ago and she said, enjoying sex work is a privilege and finding sex work empowering is a privilege. And so it's not a debate of like, is it or not, but rather like acknowledging the privilege in that space of like, if that's what you truly want to do as an independent Educated, like well-informed adult and and you find that empowering. that's fine. And acknowledge your privilege in that space because for most, it's not. And unfortunately, as privilege goes, those voices are the loudest voices in these conversations. And they are drowning out the voices of, you know, ten times as many people who are saying it's not. It's horrifically traumatizing. It was exploitive. It was, whether you have a trafficker or not, you know, it's it's a capitalistic band-aid to things like housing issues and criminal records and living wages like that. And it's not a solution like, oh, you, you know, you're not making enough money. We'll just go sell your body like that's that's not the solution here. We need to take a step back.
0: But it is some people's only choice.
1: Right. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is just, you know, everybody, most people in the commercial sex trade are enjoying what they do and they're because they want to be. And that folks without a choice just occasionally occur. And it's, it's really the opposite of that.
0: Right. And I think it speaks to such another issue, which is like there are different definitions for the word captive or, you know, when someone Mm -hmm. is is against their will necessarily. Like, I think that can be really damaging and only perpetuates this incredible shame that I would imagine is inflicted upon that community to start with. But it's like, oh, like if you weren't shackled, if you weren't had didn't have a gun pointed to your head, like then you had every opportunity to leave. And that couldn't be further from the truth.
1: Yes. And that's like, that's where, you know, sociology is so great. So life course theory, we're going to make sense of our experiences today, based on the information that we have today Mm -hmm. and five years down the road, we're going to have more knowledge and more insight. And we're going to reflect back and see things differently. Mm -hmm. So like, while I was being trafficked, I was aware. So I, out in Nevada, California was passing some trafficking legislation at the time, some of the very first legislation. And I remember us talking about it in the community and being like, well, by law, like having a pimp is being trafficked. So like Mm. cognitively I knew it, but I was like, but that's not what's happening to me because guess what? I saw the movie Taken too. And like, that's what people said trafficking was. And I was like, I wasn't kidnapped out of suburbia and like by this gang and like taken to another country. Therefore, Mm -hmm. like, People don't understand what's happening to me. Right. And so, you know, even after exiting, I still felt very protective of like, well, people just don't understand what's happening within this community. And they're coming in and wanting to control the narrative. Right. It was several years of therapy and public speaking that I really started to get to a place of like, oh my God, like I got so taken advantage of in ways that I didn't have language for. Exactly exactly and as, as we keep discussing like i wasn't i wasn't duct taped i wasn't chained up i wasn't kidnapped
0: but did you have another choice absolutely not right like yeah. when you
1: actually start unpacking this like choice and options mm-hmm. and you no, know, like did i have the freedom to leave no did i have other choices no right. like no. i made the best decisions in those moments and they exactly. were horrific options exactly
0: okay we got to take a quick break and we'll be right back within the community like are pimps do they refer to themselves as pimps or is is all of that kind of hush hush
1: no most pimps especially ceo pimps are very blatant with what they what they are and what they do um boyfriend pimps oftentimes are a little bit more like deceitful with that language okay. because they're they're trying to come across as yeah as boyfriends or intimate partners like my my boyfriend pimp after probably a couple months of knowing him, you know, and he had started like the grooming with like suggesting I go work at strip clubs said, I was like, well, what do you do for work? And he was like, well, I used to deal drugs, but like, I have two felonies for that and I can't keep doing it. So I do some of the same stuff that you do, like girls pay me and I take care of them. And he was like, but that's not you and me. Like we have something special. So even him, like I knew he was a pimp to other girls, uh-huh. but I, I felt special, but I'm like over time I was like, oh, you've run the same line on all of us girls, you know, so that we, we tolerate each other at some level.
0: Wow. So there's so much manipulation, so much psychological so much. warfare going on there. Yes. Wow. So, I mean, you are just miraculous and how far you've come since that and what, what it took to rebuild. I can just only imagine so I really want to get into just your life now. And to how many degrees do you have now? Well, it's like unbelievable. Like, so, you know, I want to get into the details of that, but take me through the rebuilding.
1: Yeah. So I exited in 2012, just really hit a rock bottom of like, I, I am going to die or I'm going to go to jail for like a sentence and I'm going to lose custody of my kids. Like, that's really where I felt like. I was. It wasn't. And this was after better. you left Vegas. Yes. Okay. So at that point, I was just like, "I'm going to stay away from pimps." But mm-hmm. you know, I have this huge arrest record. I don't have a college education. I'm still a single mom with two kids. I, this is the only thing that I know how to do now, and so I'm going to continue doing it to pay my bills until I can figure something of else out. Mm-hmm. So I did that for about six months, and then it just hit absolute rock bottom, and was just like, "I cannot be touched by another." stranger. I just cannot do it anymore. So at that point I had enrolled back in community college and I was taking like two classes and, you know, again, like back to the brainwashing, like I'd been told that I was stupid, that I would never amount to anything that, you know, prostitution was all I was good at. Like my body was the only thing that I had, right? Of course, you know, that I could use. And so I went back to community college and I was like, I don't even know what I'm good at. Like I don't know what I like because I've been told by my pimps what I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to like. But I I have no idea. I just knew
0: You're like meeting yourself for the first time.
1: Yes. And I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't just like go get, you know, a minimum wage job. Like I can't pay the bills on that. So my thought was like, okay, I have to go to college and get a degree because there's no way I'm gonna actually make enough money to support my kids unless I have something. So, yeah. So I went to school and got a full ride scholarship. Um, wow. yeah, there's a um, foundation here, the Reicher Reicher family foundation, and they primarily give scholarships to merit and needs based students who are typically non-traditional. Like I'm 28 and I have two kids. I'm not living in the dorm and, yeah. you know, doing like college life. I just need my degree. Right. And that absolutely saved my life. Like I would not have been able to like right now I'd be in debt up to my eyeballs, student loan debt.
0: And it also probably helped your self-esteem, you know, just by doing that esteemable act of like learning and, you know, yes. getting reclaiming your
1: life. Yeah. So my undergrad's in finance, um, which <laughs> is why I just, I'm so fascinated with, with the money behind trafficking and yeah like the business operations component. And it was such, again, like a very empowering degree because like, it was overwhelmingly males that were in my classes. And so to be one of the only women in that space, like brought up so many triggers, but also just like how, how I was socialized as a woman of like, you know, don't, don't hurt your brain. Don't think too hard. And so learning all of that, I was like, oh, actually I'm really good at all of this. So that was my undergrad. But during that process, I realized I do not, I do not want to be like a stockbroker. Like, I don't want to do that when I grow up. That's my backup plan. Yes. Yeah. So I graduated in 2016 with my bachelor's in finance and then went back in 2017 and got my master's in sociology. Wow. So graduated in the middle of the pandemic last year. Congratulations. Just rather anticlimactic. Yes, but it's I know done. <laughs> it's
0: such a such a bummer. It's like you do all this work.
1: Oh my gosh. I was like, this is the biggest buzzkill ever. <laughs> I know.
0: I know. But it truly like, is. I
1: have I have the degrees now. And like, that's that's been so empowering to know what I'm capable of doing yes. by myself. Like nobody else
0: and yeah and it's yours mm-hmm. so from a psychological I mean that is just we need to take 10 seconds just like <laughs> bask in that because that is just miraculous and unbelievable but I imagine that the psychological trauma and you know all of those triggers are with you every day I would imagine mm-hmm. and are you in a relationship now like a romantic
1: relationship No. So,
0: um, was it hard for you to like, get back into your body in that sense?
1: Yeah. So I just got out of an eight year relationship. So I was in a relationship almost from the time I exited and just had, I had my third child. He just turned six actually, which I feel like I blinked and he turned six. (laughs) Um, but yeah, just got out of that relationship earlier this year. So, but yeah, from a trauma perspective, like, I mean, Healing is a lifelong journey, whether we have big T trauma or not. Like exactly, life is just a journey of self discovery and and healing mother wounds and attachment styles and like all of those things. So I've 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 been in therapy for you know since I exited basically off and on. You found
0: that to be most like effective as far as healing.
1: I definitely like a mix of things. So I I discovered the term bibliotherapy, which is just reading because i'm i need to understand like why in my head like why did this happen how did it happen yes i need to be able like i need language to my experiences so i went through probably a 6 month phase where i literally just read everything i could get my hands wow. on of like psychological manipulation and brainwashing and cults and all of that i've done like individual therapy i i'm a poster child for emdr i think emdr okay. is amazing EMDR is essentially a
0: therapy technique that stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing EMDR. So for people that don't know, can you explain a little bit sure. more about what that is?
1: <laughs> From a non, non-clinician disclaimer, basically you either have flashing lights or like vibrating buzzers that you either hold or look at and it alternates like left, right, left, right. And so what it does is essentially like mimics REM sleep where your eyes move back and forth, and it helps you process the emotions and the experiences of a traumatic event. And so my therapist actually just described some of the EMDR process. So when you have PTSD, you have like a very limited bandwidth. So I'm holding my hands up, but you maybe have like an inch of tolerance, right? And so that's what causes a trigger is you experience emotional overwhelm and you just don't have space for it. Like your body and your brain just cannot handle it. You're nervous. Yeah. 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 And so you just, that's where the PTSD symptoms, you see them. So EMDR actually increases that bandwidth of tolerance over time. So instead of an inch, you maybe have like six inches of tolerance. So you're still going to have those triggers, Yes. you know, like I may still smell some cologne, but I'm not going to have, I'm not going to punch that person in the face or like vomit or like have these like huge exaggerated reactions I'm going to actually be like, oh, I do not like that. I need to leave the room or like ask somebody to stand back because I have more tolerance to cope with that trigger right. in the moment.
0: Even things like the male voice or yes. anything like, yeah, that was, wow. Wow. That's so fascinating. It's,
1: like, EMDR is incredible. Wow.
0: Wow. Have you, and do you plan to broach the topic with your kids or how involved are they in like the Avery Center and everything. Sure.
1: Yeah. So uh my oldest, he's actually a senior and he's he has to do community service for his capstone. Okay. Um so him and his girlfriend are volunteering here right now. Oh sweet. Um, they they've been super involved from day one. Yeah they, they're my number one volunteers. <laughs> Um, they, they've definitely contributed to getting things to where, where the organization is now, but at home, like we have very open conversations. I've always, and this applies to like everything with my kids. If they're old enough to ask the question, that means like their brain is ready for this information. And so really letting them lead those conversations and providing them information in age appropriate levels. Right. So they've, I mean, we've always talked about it at some level, but I would say it's probably four years ago Mm -hmm. that they really were like, Oh, like mom was trafficked, Mm -hmm. you know? And so they're starting to put, put more to it. Like my daughter actually just wrote, um, so she's 14. She's a freshman this year. Um, she's doing an English class and I was like, I had to like go cry in the other room. Um, but she came home like the first week of school and she was like, I get to write my story and so she um she was like can i, I want to tell you like what i wrote so far and so she actually talks about in her early childhood like ages 2 to 7 mm-hmm. of me being trafficked and like her wow. memories during that time and so giving her that space to have those conversations and, wow. and honoring her experiences like yes. she lived through that too right what and part of I that her story yep mm-hmm. so that's it's been really neat to see them kind of come through that and like they they have their own healing journeys that they're on Right,
0: now. right. But what a gift that you give them the information and have the openness and conversation and even have something that that your son can now, like, volunteer at. That's so yes. cool. And, like, what a happy ending. Not an ending, but, you know, it's it's so yes. beautiful what you've created. Thank I want to you. talk about the Avery Center, what you guys do, how people can utilize these resources that you guys offer. And just, you know, if you can add to that, we talk so much about how people are hiding in plain sight, essentially, sex trafficked people. What are ways in which people can help, you know, if you detect that or, you know, what are the signs
1: that you can pick up on? Yeah. So at the Avery Center, we have um, direct services for victims and survivors, a full range of services. So you can go to the AveryCenter.org and click on the services tab and learn all about everything that we do. All of our services and programs have been developed by survivors and, and not just one survivor, you know, like putting a stamp of approval on it, kind of a thing. Like it's been a collective process of what is needed and how do we best deliver that. Wonderful. And I think that's why we have such successful programs is because it's being driven by those of us who are like, this is what's needed because I've been there and I know what I needed. We also do a lot of research. So last year I transitioned into the research side of the organization. So out of direct services and into research and really, again, just like making sure survivor voices are heard So not telling their stories for them, but creating a platform for those voices to be heard and doing a lot of advocacy work. So not Mm -hmm. only developing our own programs, but stepping out into the community and the field and supporting other organizations with like, here's our findings and here's how you can implement these, these practices as well. We've just started to um, kind of step into like the policy and advocacy world. Okay. I'm I'm learning so much right now about that space because that's totally new to me, but really exciting. So if people want to get involved, I would say definitely you can follow us on social media and like yes. and share our stuff. Okay. Super easy, inexpensive, and really fast way to get involved. As always you can financially support our services and research. Um, We're currently working on a project looking at OnlyFans and the big piece that we need is like, again, I can come in with my own opinions about what's happening, but I, I haven't created content on OnlyFans and I haven't purchased content there. So I'm Mm -hmm. not the expert in that space. And so we do a lot of research projects and we need funding for those research projects. To go to the people who are on that platform and say like, what has your experience been here? Yes. Um, so that's one of the things we're working on right now. And I would say this is like my, this is like my soapbox. Yes,
0: <laughs> please. So
1: there there's tons of human trafficking kind of, we call them HT one Oh ones, um, trainings out there. Some are great. Some are not so great. I think like the Department of State, the Office for Trafficking in Persons has some fantastic resources. Okay. The National Human Trafficking Training and Technical Assistance Center is another great resource. And they have great trainings that if you're really wanting to just kind of, you know, understand like, what does this look like for every prostituted person or person in the commercial sex trade? There are 10 consumers per day. Yeah. So there are 10 times as many consumers out there as there are victims. And like they hold the power. They literally hold the power and the money. And so if right. they are not purchasing, people are less likely to be exploited. Mm-hmm. And there is no way to guarantee, like, there's absolutely some, you know, trainings that talk about tattoos and stuff. And yeah. tattoos are culturally specific. Like familial victims don't get branded by their traffickers. Right. right. So There's, you can't walk into, you know, a strip club or you cannot look online at pornography or an escort advertising or sugar baby site and know for a fact that that person is not being trafficked Mm -hmm. or is there out of survival. There's no way for you to know that. And they've been conditioned to give a happy response. Nobody wants a depressing story. They want to feel good. So, so that's, that's number one, don't buy sex and like sex trafficking goes away. Yes.
0: Wow. Okay. I'm blown away by you. You are my hero, truly. The <laughs> empathy that you can give our listeners or people that are going through a similar situation or know someone is just going to be life-changing. So I appreciate you, you so much because I know it's not easy to revisit this stuff, but you are miraculous and I'm in awe of you. So thank you. Thank, well, thank you, you. Thank you. And we will include all the resources that Megan mentioned in the show notes. Thank you so much for doing this with thank me and you. for giving me an hour and 40 minutes of your <laughs> hours of your time. Thank you so, so much. I'm so so grateful. (laughs) Megan's strength and resilience is nothing short of remarkable. I'm so grateful that she took the time to recount so many horrific memories in the hopes that it will soften all of our hearts to the victims of sex trafficking and help us understand how these traffickers are hiding in plain sight. I learned so much from Megan. I feel like I got a full college education on sex trafficking. And I just feel we all could use that education so desperately because it was shocking and almost shameful how little I knew about this world and how apparent and evident it is in everyday life. When I first sat down with Megan, I thought this episode would be an anomaly. But what I've come to realize through talking to her is that this situation is absolutely not unique in any way shape or form there are so many vulnerable men women people especially right now that can so easily fall victim to this world it's pretty astounding really anyway i hope that you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned a lot too I will see you back here next week for another episode. And in the meantime, if you could please rate, subscribe, and comment on the show page, I would be forever grateful. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Bye.